Good morning, fellowship. Morning. All right, good to see everybody. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I would love to meet you sometime, or if we haven't chatted in a while. Uh, I try to remember to say this when I can, but just come, come down sometime after the service if we haven't met or it's been a little while. I'd love to shake hands with you and see how you are. Maybe put a name with a face. Fill in the blank of this phrase. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Perhaps there is no greater illustration in the sports world of that phrase than the Hail Mary pass. My mind was thinking about that this weekend because some of you all are aware it was the NFL draft, which, you know, one of those few times that college football fans like me and pro football fans like many other people kind of come together and, and a lot of people are interested in the NFL draft. Some of you are thinking this is the silliest thing, you know, why do people tune in to watch these names get called and all this? Well, anyway, I won't, I won't tell you why, but for me, it's fun to follow it as a fan of college football. And I was thinking about the Hail Mary Pass with this phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures, and I thought to Google it. So I Googled Hail Mary Pass and I found the Wikipedia article on it. Here's the definition of a Hail Mary Pass. A very long forward pass in American football, typically made in desperation, with an exceptionally small chance of achieving a completion. So if you're a fan of a team and you find yourself in the position that you need to make a Hail Mary pass, the game is on the line and your heart stops beating as soon as that ball goes in the air. But you also don't have a lot of optimism. You're at a place where you know this is our only hope, which is where it got the name Hail Mary. It's a prayer, you know, living on a prayer, so to speak. I, I, I did a little research in how it actually started. And can anyone just guess if you don't know what college started this idea? Of course, University of Notre Dame. It's Notre Dame. So back in the 1930s, there was literally some games where they would pray the Hail Mary, you know, in the huddle. I mean, this is what, what they say anyway, like four horsemen, you're talking about this in the 1930s. And so they sort of started it, but it didn't get really popular in the NFL until 1975. There was a famous game between the Dallas Cowboys, a playoff game on December 28th, 1975, the Dallas Cowboys and the Minnesota Vikings. And Roger Staubach, the famous quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys completed this long pass to win the game. And in the interview afterward, this is what Staubach said. He said, I closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. And thus the, uh, the phrase was born or at least brought into the, the popular meaning. Now I happen to have up here a football. Now I'm not a very good passer of footballs, just so you know, just be forewarned. But I was thinking it might be fun to do a Hail Mary pass so I'm looking out the stage. Who should I throw it to? Okay, right oh, there, there he is. There he is. Okay, it's going to come over this way. Okay, I'm going to try, try to get it all the way out there now, close to the very back row. Now, a couple things before, before I throw this. If you're one of the uh, 90% of people in America that are afraid of a football bashing you in the nose, and you happen to be sitting in this section right here, then the Hail Mary pass has a whole new meaning for you this morning. So might the phrase desperate times call for desperate measures because if this football is heading to your way, you do not want to be like Marsha Brady, okay? Some of, some of you all know the reference that I'm referring to. Okay, so you ready for this? It's coming all the way. Here we go, here we go. I can't, I can't do it. I know, I know, I can't do it. I, I trust you, I don't trust me. I'm not going to do it. Seriously, here's why. 
When I first came to this church, after a sermon, we, I did this illustration with beach balls and we had this really like oversized huge beach ball and the lady actually hurt her shoulder trying to hit this beach ball. I mean, it was a really big beach ball. You have to imagine this. And so after that, I vowed I will never again throw things from the stage. So that's the only reason. I can't do it. I'm, I'm afraid I'm gonna hurt. I'm, someone's gonna get hurt. Now, we, yeah, someone said that's a relief right there. You were, you were in the target zone. In our study of the book of Ruth, we've come to a passage that is one of the most famous Hail Mary plays in the Bible. And I want to remind us why Ruth and Naomi were in such a desperate situation that they had to do something desperate. So just to get us caught back up, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter three. We begin chapter three this morning, and I'm gonna put an illustration here back on the screen. We haven't used this in, in a few weeks. You should recognize it if you've been in this series with us for a little bit of time. But on the screen you have here is an illustration of the societal structure of the really ancient people in this day, not just Hebrew culture, although Hebrew culture was part of it. This was a patriarchal society, and we know what that means. You know, that means the patriarch or the man of the house sort of sort of ruled the roost, but it's, it's actually deeper than that. It means their whole culture was centered around the, the Beit Av. Now, Beit simply is a Hebrew word meaning house of the father, so Beit means house, and Ab is father. So, you know, when Jesus says Abba, he's saying dad, essentially. It's a form of Ab. So the house of the father was the center of that community. Here's what this means. The patriarch of the family was responsible for providing, for, uh, for protecting, for the rule of government to enforce the law. There, there was no government, essentially. It was a collection of individual families that were loosely held together. So you had the Patriarch's household, a little bit outside of that, you had your clan. This was a collection of families. Think of it as an extended family uh, in our context, but this was much more than our typical extended family. This might've been dozens, sometimes even hundreds of extended families would be in a clan. Of course, you have tribe was the next. Um, you know, we've heard all about this in the Bible, You know, the tribe of this, the tribe of that, and then the nation as a whole. Society worked inside out, not the other way around. Now, here's why I illustrate all this. If the patriarch dies, you have someone else take over that family. In Ruth and Naomi's case, that person died, and then they had another son as well. That person died. So all the potential patriarchs were dead. What that meant was Ruth and Naomi were suddenly outside of their society without protection, without provision, without hope. You could think of the whole plot of the book of Ruth. Will there be someone from the clan, which is the, you know the, the next sphere out that can come get Ruth and Naomi and graft them back into the provision and protection of the society. That's the plot of Ruth. Now, in that structure, there were no government safety nets. There were no provisions for people like Ruth and Naomi, except in God's law, there was a provision for a redeemer to come and redeem them and bring them back in. The question of Ruth is, will someone step up to the redemption? And we get to chapter three of our text, and what we're going to see is the redemption story finally start to come to light. Let's start in verse one of Ruth chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? If you're marking up your Bible or your Ruth journal, and, and I encourage you to, to, to mark up your Bible, circle the word rest. It's a key word 
in the book of Ruth. It means much more than an early retirement. It's not about that. It's about the safety and security. Ruth and Naomi were having to fight for their lives. They were living meal to meal. Uh, when the harvest time was over, it was unsure where their next meal was going to come from. They were vulnerable to, to other men who might take advantage of them. Remember, there was no patriarch that could enforce the law and protect them from harm. And so Naomi is saying, you know, shouldn't I, as your mother-in-law, want rest for you? What makes me think this is a key word in Ruth is because it's the second time, at least, that we've seen it. You don't have to turn there, but I'll remind you in chapter one, verse nine, as Ruth was saying goodbye to, I'm sorry, Naomi was saying goodbye. I get those, it's easy to get those mixed up sometimes, so forgive me when I do that. When Naomi was saying goodbye to Ruth and Orpah in Moab, she said this, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of a husband. Security, protection, that's, that's what rest is all about. Here's what's interesting. Now in chapter three, Ruth, sorry, Naomi, is going to be an answer to her own prayer from chapter one. And I started thinking about this. You know, Naomi had prayed for rest for her daughter-in-laws, and now here she is in chapter three, and she's saying, Should, shouldn't I be a part of that? Shouldn't I seek rest for you that it may be well with you? I don't think she's trying to step out of God's providence, I think she's recognizing something that I've been thinking about this week. The providence of God often flows through human hands. Think about that. The providence of God often flows through human hands. Not always. God does work around humans. He does miraculous things. He did it in the Bible. He does it today. Miracles happen for sure. But by and large, how does God get things done on the earth? Through his image bearers on the earth you and me, human beings. God primarily works his will on the earth through human agency. The providence of God often flows through human hands. So isn't that interesting that she, in essence, is going to be part of the answer to her own prayer from earlier in the book? Okay, then she's going to describe this scheme, this plan that she has for Ruth. You gotta check this out. This is really actually rather remarkable. Verses two to five. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were. See, she's putting the dots together. She's like, well, oh, there could be something here. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. When Lloyd and I plan out a new series, we cast lots for the good passages. <laughs> now, I walked into this one thinking, oh, what do I say about this? Is there more going on? Are we supposed to read between the lines? Is there innuendo here? Certainly, the, at minimum, we can say this is weird. Can we just agree with that? It's, it's strange. We don't know. Here's what scholars do not know, and I did a lot of research on this. We don't know if this was a normal custom at the time or not to, to sort of propose marriage this way by laying at someone's feet. We don't actually have evidence of that. Uh, we also don't know if this would have been socially acceptable. We don't really know that. All, all we really know is in Naomi's mind, this plan was gonna communicate something to Boaz. You know, it was going to communicate to Boaz that Ruth was interested in marrying him. We don't always understand cultural customs 
things in the Bible, not fully, and that's okay. God communicates what we need to know, especially you know, in, 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 during difficult passages like this. Think about what we're up against as Bible interpreters. This is halfway across the world, 3,000 years before our time. So there's a, a lot of gaps we can't fill and know. I was thinking of, of how can I help us think about what that would be like. Imagine it were 3,000 years from now. Now, that, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? The, the year, uh, uh, let, let's think about this. Hold on a minute. What would 3,000 years from now? 5022 would be the year. It's hard to even comprehend. I mean, I don't necessarily think the world's gonna be around then. <laughs> I think Jesus will come back, but let's say he doesn't. Let's say it's the year 5022. Halfway across the world, someone from some other future culture civilization uncovers a book written in the United States in our day and time. And they open it up. The first thing they'd have to do is they'd have to translate the language because they would not be speaking our English anymore. Whatever language they're speaking in the future, halfway across the world, they'd have to translate it, you know, do the history, all the kind of stuff on that. And let's just say they came across a paragraph that read something like this. His mother told him, cover yourself with scary clothes and then ring the bell of the neighbor. When they open the door, threaten them with something mischievous unless they hand you a tasty dessert snack. <laughs> they'd have no idea what is happening. My point is this, don't be surprised when there's some things in a 3,000-year-old text that we don't exactly know all that's going on. But here's what we know for sure. We know for sure that this was communicating to Boaz. And one more thing we know for sure. This was a desperate move. Why do we know it was a desperate move? Well, what did we say at the beginning? Desperate times call for desperate measures. This was a desperate time for these women. And this is why I wanted you to understand what a desperate situation they're in. So it's no surprise that, that Naomi would say, let's just do this Hail Mary pass. And it's like she's the coach calling Ruth over to the sideline. It's like, look, I thought of something. I thought of this scheme. It's like that guy over there, he's not gonna see the light and ask you to marry him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to sneak up to him in the middle of the night. I want you to lay down on his feet. You know, you can just kind of imagine this. Now, here's Ruth hearing this and thinking, okay, mother, I guess if that's what they do in your culture, <laughs> that's what I would have said. What Ruth actually says is, all that you say, I will do. Think about what a risk this was for Ruth. So there are two times in the story where Ruth takes a giant leap of faith. Chapter one, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Chapter three, all that you say, I will do with this crazy scheme, both of those were preceded by words of commitment followed by actions in line with the commitment. This is what we see from Ruth. And I want you to think about what a big risk this was for Ruth personally. She's a young woman. She's a foreigner. Think about the vulnerability of her sneaking down at night, laying down at the feet of a man as he is sleeping. I, Man, I, I, most of us in the room, I don't know how well easily we can connect to the, the vulnerability and the, the fear of what that would be for her, but, but maybe women in the room understand this more. This was scary. This was frightening. This was a desperate move because these women were not going to survive unless someone took them in. Ruth was entrusting herself again to Naomi and her wisdom she was entrusting herself to Boaz 
that he would be a righteous man in this moment. And more importantly, she was entrusting herself to the God that she had pledged to follow. And she said to Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She's entrusting herself. She's, she's throwing the ball in the air saying, Hail Mary, you know, not Mary. <laughs> Yahweh, God of the universe, I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm taking a risk. So Naomi laid out the plan. It was up to Ruth to execute the plan. Evening comes. It's go time for Operation Threshing Floor. Before I, I read this text, let me just paint the picture of what's going on here with the winnowing of the barley. They would cut the grains. They would go on the ground of the field. They would bundle them up, put them on a cart. They would take the cart to the threshing floor. What was a threshing floor? A large, wide-open space of packed-down dirt or sometimes hewn stone, you know, maybe roughly the size of the stage, depending on the size of the town. They would typically have one threshing floor for the whole town, so it was probable that it wasn't just Boaz and his servants that would have been here that night threshing. This was the time for threshing. The, the, the barley had been harvested. Well, how did they thresh? They would spread the, the crop on the ground. They would have an animal or animals that would stomp on it, walk on it, lead them all around. The reason they would do that is the pressure, the weight, would separate the grain from the rest, which was the chaff. And then they would probably take a, a big pitchfork or something like that, and, and they would scoop all of it up and they would toss it into the air. The breeze that was blowing, which is why they would do this at, in the evening, because the, the breeze was more uh, probable and more consistent, would blow away the chaff and the good grain would fall to the ground. They could gather that up in piles and that's what they would use. By the way, if you do that in the evening, you're gonna sleep at the threshing floor with your crop because you don't have time. There's not enough light to get it to a safe place. You don't want someone to steal your crop. It would be essentially like us having stacks of dollar bills just hanging around. You're gonna sleep next to it. That's exactly what Boaz does. So, so picture that scene. Don't forget, Naomi had told Ruth, make sure you mark the spot where he lies down because you don't want to wake the wrong guy. There would have been others there. And so the, the, the play's been called. Ruth runs out on the field. She's like, all right, I'm gonna execute the play. Let's see how she, what happens. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, that means quietly, and uncovered his feet and lay down. Why uncover his feet? Two possibilities. It's possible that uncovering his feet was a cultural symbol that would be interpreted as, as reading between the lines, uncovering his feet, possible. Here's another scenario I think's just the literal obvious one. Think about this practically. She wants to wake him up, but she does not wanna make a scene because there were other people around. So she can't come up and shake him, okay? He's like, whoa, what is that? What does she do? Naomi's pretty smart. Naomi says, you need to uncover his feet because what's gonna happen is his feet are gonna get cold as the temperature drops throughout the night. He's gonna stir at some point. He's gonna cover himself up. That's exactly what happens with Boaz. Let's take a look. This is, by the way, my, my favorite line in the book of Ruth is right here. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman was at his feet. I just think that's funny. 
I, I, I think the author had a smile on his face, the narrator, when he wrote this down. And then every Hebrew grandpa telling this to the, the kids, you know, the kids would have giggled, you know, it's just like, and he woke up and there was a woman, you know, who would have, didn't go, go to bed with a woman and there's a woman at his feet. Now, Verse nine is the most important verse in our passage. And I've come to believe maybe one of the most important verses in the book. It's actually amazing. And I wanna explain why it's amazing. He said, who are you? Now let's just pause there before we go on. Do you remember Naomi's plan? Uncover his feet, lay down, and he will tell you what to do. There wasn't anything in Naomi's plan for how to answer any question. This is forcing Ruth to improvise, you know? That, and that's real life. Like, things don't go exactly to plan. And so Ruth's gonna have to improvise. Who are you? She's like, well, how do I answer this question? It means, do I just say my name? Do I say, what do I do? What do I do? Do I say anything else besides my name? This answer is amazing. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. Why is this so amazing? Um, let's break it down. Phrase by phrase, this is the moment that the ball's in the air, right? The, the Hail Mary's going, and what do they do? They go in slow motion. Let's look at it phrase by phrase. I'm gonna mark it up. The first thing she does is answer his direct question. She says her name, I am Ruth, your servant. Interestingly, throughout the book of Ruth, she's not usually referred to as Ruth. She's usually referred to as the Moabite, sometimes Naomi's daughter-in-law, but the emphasis on the fact that she's from a foreign enemy land is all throughout the book of Ruth. The first time that Boaz meets her, he calls his servant over and says, who's that in the field? And the servant says, that's the foreigner. That's the, the, the daughter-in-law of Naomi who is from the foreign land of Moab. He doesn't say the name. By giving her her name, Ruth is stepping into her own identity. She, she is saying, I am Ruth. And then she follows up with your servant. Probably a reference to the fact that she had now been in Boaz field for some time now gleaning, but more importantly, it was a posture of humility. This description of herself as Boaz servant matches the posture she's currently in laying at his feet. It's a symbolic place to lie down. She's saying, I'm your servants, a posture of humility. So what I want you to see even this first, first phrase is both the boldness of showing up in her identity. This is my name, this is who I am, since I'm the foreigner, so I'm Ruth. And humility, your servant. Boldness, humility. Now it gets even better. Her next phrase, spread your wings over your servant. Do you remember Naomi's, Naomi's um, plan was... He will tell you what to do. Ruth does not wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. Ruth tells Boaz what to do. Spread your wings over your servant. Now, if you're circling words, circle the word wings. It's another key word in the book of Ruth. This is brilliant. This phrase is brilliant that Ruth chooses it. Let me explain. There were three meanings that the same Hebrew word meant. The, the, the word that's translated wings in our English. Meaning number one, it was the edges of the cloak that a man would wear, his outer garment called the, the wings. That was the literal word she was using for it. So just the, the, the most literal way Boaz would have heard it is cover me with your cloak. Well, 
the cloak was not just what he would wear in the daytime. In that culture, you would also wear your cloak at night. It was your coat and it was your blanket. It was the most valuable possession that people in that culture had. So it was the wings of the cloak, the blanket, the, clo the coat that she had uncovered from his feet. She's saying, cover me with it. It's almost saying like, yeah, it's chilly. Cover me with your blanket. Cover me with your cloak. That's meaning number one. Meaning number two, for a man in that culture to put his coat on a woman was a clear symbolic gesture that meant he intended to marry her. And this is very well attested in other places in the Bible and in extra biblical literature. There was no confusion about what that would have meant. When she says, cover me with your cloak or your, the coat that he had over him, she was saying, marry me. That was clear. Third meaning. This exact same Hebrew word also referred to the wings of a bird, which is why I like the fact that it's translated wings in our English. So you think about a, a mother hen wrapping the wings around her chicks. That was the idea. Now, I am very confident that Ruth had all these meanings in mind. The reason we know for sure she was thinking of this metaphorical or the, 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 the bird or the hen wings is because she uses the same phrase that Boaz used the first time they met. For those of you that are married, do you remember the first time you met your spouse? I bet you do. I bet you do. You may or may not remember the conversation. Ruth did. Look back at chapter two, verse 12. It's on the screen. I'll read it for you. This is Boaz in some of his very first words, the first time he ever met Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, same word, you have come to take refuge. So just like we talked about with Naomi, Boaz had previously prayed a blessing, a prayer of blessing over Ruth. May God spread his wings out over you. And now Ruth, a chapter later, is saying to Boaz, be the answer to your own prayer. Boaz, spread your wings over me and answer your prayer for God to provide, for God to protect. The providence of God often flows through human hands. Now, if there was any doubt of all that Ruth was intending with this phrase, spread your wings over your servant, the doubt is removed with the last phrase, for you are a redeemer. One more key word. We know that's a key word in the book of Ruth, redeemer. This is the first time anyone has directly called Boaz a redeemer to his face. Naomi and Ruth had talked about maybe he could be a redeemer for us. But now Ruth is doing something amazing. Ruth is calling Boaz up to that title. She is giving him an identity to live into. If 
there's any question of, of what was gonna happen at that threshing floor that night was righteous or not, this is gonna remove it because this idea of redeemer was embedded in God's law. And so Ruth is saying, I know who you are, Boaz. You're a righteous man. You are a follower of Yahweh. You are a redeemer of our family. So spread your wings because that's who you are. Care for me. Save me. Redeem me. And so in essence, if you think about this conversation, it started with Boaz asking Ruth, who are you? And it, it pauses here with Ruth reminding Boaz who he is. You are a redeemer. It's just identity language. So you put this remarkable little speech together. And in essence, Ruth is saying, who am I? I'm Ruth, your servant. You know who I am, Boaz. Do you remember the first time we met? You prayed that God would spread his wings over me and that I would find refuge under the wings of God. Spread your wings over me, Boaz, because you are a redeemer a righteous man, someone whom God has intended to call up for this moment to care and protect and provide and redeem us back into the family. Now we're gonna pause the text right there until next week. And I know we're leaving the ball hanging in the air. We don't know, is it gonna be caught? Is it gonna be fumbled? Come back next week and find out. <laughs> we know. But I want to finish our time this morning talking about how we can apply this to our lives. Because on the one hand, it's a quirky little text, right? It's like, I don't know what I make of this. You know, it's kind of the weirdest part of the book of Ruth. On the other hand, I've come to believe there's something in us that is remarkable for us to apply. Think of it this way. Ruth's approach to Boaz in chapter three parallels the experience of every Christian. And I wanna unpack that for you. We know that Boaz points to Christ. Eric did a great job last week of unpacking that. If you missed that message, I encourage you to watch that on our Facebook feed. He did a really good job. So Boaz points to Jesus. So what I want you to say is, how does Ruth, someone who needs redemption, come to the Redeemer Think about this in parallel to our own stories. Ruth risked everything for this one source of rescue, this one hope of rescue. Ruth lied down at the Redeemer's feet. She identified herself as his servant. She brought nothing but her own need. When she spoke to him, she was bold and yet humble at the same time. And she called on his identity as a Redeemer. In essence, she threw herself at the righteousness of this man. This is the posture of every redeemed person. You and I bring nothing to the table except our own neediness. And I want you to hear this morning, that is exactly as it should be. Some of you, you've tried to come to Jesus in this way. It's like, I, Jesus, take my little righteousness and add your greater righteousness to it and we'll have something here. That's not the way we approach Jesus. We can't come with any of our own pride. We can't come with any of our own self-righteousness. We can't come with anything other than need. I've got one more little illustration this morning. It's just a cup. What matters so much is not the cup. What matters more is what's in the cup. There's nothing in the cup. 
This cup is the picture of someone whose life is ready to be redeemed by Jesus. This cup is empty and it knows it. You and I have a really hard time with emptiness. I think the reason is because it means we're needy. I don't like to be needy. I'm okay if you're needy. I'll help you. I'll serve you. You know, we're okay with needy people as long as they don't get too close, but we'll give them money. We'll give them help. You know, we'll listen to them when they're stressed. But I don't want to be needy. You don't want to be needy. There is a sense that we need to repent of that. Follow this. If you're not willing to be empty and needy, you will never lie down at the feet of Jesus. You might give a little money to the cause of Jesus. You might show up on Sunday mornings in the name of Jesus. You might do some righteous acts. You know, as as someone who likes Jesus, you'll never lay down at his feet until you realize how empty you are, how desperate you are. You'll never attempt to Hail Mary pass until it's the only thing you got left. Jesus talked about emptiness and neediness all the time, and it was never negative. It was always positive. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick, and I've come for the sick, he said. Jesus told stories about lost things that had no other hope other than someone coming to rescue them, and they were found. He affirmed a repentant tax collector right next to a a smug Pharisee. He pointed out the poor widow who had nothing to offer except this one tiny little nothingness. He shooed away the hypocritical religious leaders that wanted to stone a woman caught in adultery. He celebrated the rebellious son turning home to the father, penniless, filthy. And all these in his teachings and his actions were illustrations of his shocking statement in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means the empty ones, the desperate ones, those with absolutely nothing to offer, the bankrupt ones. Blessed are are they, why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones who've come to receive. The empty cup is the shape of the poor in spirit. Do not despise it. Do not run away from your own need. Do not try to fill your cup. This is where I believe desperate circumstances that some of you are in right now can turn out to be the best possible thing that could ever happen to you because God will use these things. Even your own sin, he will use. When you fall flat on your face in the muck of your own sin and you just absolutely blow it big time or whether you're desperate for things that are outside of your own control, God will use all of these things to bring you to the glorious emptiness of the poor in spirit. Our application this morning is to make Ruth's statement our own. And we'll put that on the screen as our invitation to life. I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, this may be the first time you've thought of it this way. It may not be. But I want to encourage you, put your name in Ruth's speech. I am Rob, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
in this one little statement, you are both admitting your own need and claiming the identity of your redeemer. Some of you may never have prayed a prayer like this in your life. If you can pray this prayer and mean it, this is redemption day for you. This is salvation. Because all that Jesus said and did pointed to the weekend that we just celebrated a couple weeks ago where he went to the cross for you, was buried, raised up for you so that you can come in your emptiness and simply say, I'm here, I'm finally showing up. You know me, you see me, but I have shown at your feet. I'm lying here desperate, I'm lying here empty. Jesus, spread your wings over me because that's who you are. And I'm calling on you to redeem me. I know many of you have prayed a prayer like that before. I wanna remind you this morning, don't get too far away from desperation. Don't, don't think you're ever on your own apart from clinging to Jesus full. Jesus is your fullness. He's all you have. And if you've stumbled in the room this morning, just weary and, and tired and down, Jesus is here for you. He brought you here to lay at his feet. If you've come in all muddy and dirty and I've just been a wreck, I've been sinning and I can't stop sinning, lay at his feet this morning. Cry this out, put your name in there. You're at the best place at this moment than you've been in a long time if you see your own desperation. Don't let it go. I wanna invite you to take out the communion elements that you picked up on your way in. And, and if you didn't pick them up, don't be shy. I'm gonna give you a few minutes. I'm gonna be talking about this. Just get up, go right up through those doors and, and pick them up. I, I really want you to do that. We've got several that are moving. You won't be alone. Just go ahead and go back there and grab it. This, this is for anyone who at any point in time has ever cried a prayer like this, a cry of desperation to their redeemer. Maybe for some of you, that, that's this morning. Let this be your first true communion. I know for many of you, it was in the past, and I don't want us, any of us to miss this opportunity this morning to be reminded of our desperation, to be reminded of our need. We who are sick have a healer. We who are bankrupt have a benefactor. We who are sinners have someone who has paid the price for our sin. I want you just to hold this little morsel in your hand, the bread. One of the reasons I love the fact that we do communion every week at Fellowship is because I often need a tangible reminder that my salvation is real. Here is something you can hold in your hands. Here's something you can touch. Here's something you can taste. In a moment, you'll, you'll chew it, you'll swallow it. It will become part of you. It has some substance to it. It reminds us that your redemption is real. Jesus is real. You can trust him. You can cry out for help. And so with that in our minds, we eat the bread in the name of Jesus. Before you drink the cup, just hold it in your hand. 
Let this cup remind you of the empty cup. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prayed that the Father would take the cup away from him. What cup was he talking about? He was talking about the, the cup of the wrath of God because of our sins. Jesus did not drink an empty cup. Jesus drank the cup for us. And then he offered his blood, another cup, in its place. He got the cup of wrath. We get the cup of salvation. But you can only receive it when you're empty. All those this morning that are empty apart from Jesus Christ, drink the cup. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of our salvation. We thank you for our great Redeemer. We thank you that you arranged our salvation in such a way that we have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to offer. There is no righteousness in our own. And Father, there is such sweetness of being reminded of that through this text. I pray the rest of this service as we sing this song will be a picture of a group of people laying at the feet of their Redeemer, thanking him for answering our cry for help. In Jesus' name we pray.